Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this first episode of our collaborative webinar mini-series on Usher syndrome. Retina UK have collaborated with Usher Kids UK and Cure Usher to deliver two sessions on all things ushers. So we're really pleased to have with us tonight Mr Rob Henderson from Great Ormond Street, uh, one of the UK's leading authorities on Usher syndrome. We have James uh, Bavinsky, I uh, apologise if I got that one wrong, I've only just been told how to pronounce it, um, from UCL London. Uh, Chloe Joyner from Usher Kids UK and Kate Arkell from Retin UK. And a huge welcome and thanks to Sarah and Susan, who are our BSL interpreters this evening. Uh, so this webinar will look at three main questions. Um, so what is Usher syndrome? How do I get a diagnosis? Um, and what I do, uh, what do I do once I've got that diagnosis? And we'll also look at the importance of some natu natural history studies. So we're really keen for you to be able to ask um, your questions this evening. So please do type any that you have in the Q&A section on your screen. Um, we'll have these questions answered by the team on your behalf um, throughout the presentation. So please do leave any questions that you have um, and we'll answer them at the end. We will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can. However, any questions we are not able to get to today will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker of the evening, Mr. Rob Henderson. Thank you, Matt. And um, welcome all of you this evening. Hopefully we're gonna get up and running. There we go. Thumbs up from Matt. Are we all seeing that clearly? Great. So my thanks to Matt and my thanks to Chloe actually for inviting me to um, speak to you all this evening. And um, I'm aware that some of you will know huge amounts about this subject. And a lot of it will be repeating stuff that you've heard time and again. And for many others of you, this a lot of it is still very new and you've come along hoping that you might glean a little bit more information. And so hopefully I can steer a path um, to satisfying both members of the audience. So Chloe asked me to um, start off simply, what is Usher syndrome? And I suppose you all know that really. Um, it was first described um, by this chap, Albrecht von Graef who was working alongside um, an amazing illustrator at the time, a guy called Richard Liebrich, who drew these phenomenal pictures. But it wasn't uh, von Graef's um, destiny to be given the name. It was actually Charles Usher who described this as a genetic condition. And he was an Edinburgh-born ophthalmologist and in 1914 was given the eponymous name. And it is, of course, the combination of sensory neural deafness and progressive vision loss associated with retinitis pigmentosa. And you might ask, well, how does retinitis pigmentosa get that name? And that's kind of interesting, too, because the first chap who spotted it, if you look at these old drawings there, if you're not covered up by the little um, pictures of me, but behind there, there's a slide of um, an old drawing, and, and this chap Franz Donders was looking in with his very primitive uh, ophthalmoscope, and he saw lots of pigment in the retina. So he's called it pigmentosa. And because everything must be inflammatory, he stuck an itis on the end of it, 
so it was retinitis pigmentosa. Of course, we know now that retinitis pigmentosa or RP is a genetic condition and there's very little in the way of inflammation associated with this, but there we are, that's how the term came about. So we know that um, congenital deafness um, is relatively common in, in terms of rare disease, um, 1.3 per thousand live births and rising to 2.8 uh, per thousand at school age. And of those, ushers is the most common form of at least hereditary deaf blindness. Uh, and the numbers vary depending on where you look at the literature, but it's between four and 17 per 100,000 births. Um, and of course, as you know, um, the description has largely been a, uh, in terms of when the hearing loss starts as to whether or not you're given a diagnosis of usher one, usher two or usher three. And so we know that if you are born with profound sensory neural hearing loss and some vestibular, some balance issues, that it's likely that you're going to have type one usher syndrome um, if you are then diagnosed with RP as well as a, with, a, with an early onset retinal dystrophy. And type two usher syndrome, well, um, the hearing loss is less severe and the RP starts a bit later, um, and so on with USH3. And I mean, I hesitate a little around this area because it's starting to fragment a little, this classification. It, it holds true, and I'll, I'll explain why there's a bit of fragmentation. So with USH1, we know as I said, the profound sensory neural hearing loss, the pre-pubertal onset of the retinal dystrophy and the vestibular function. And it's classically caused by one of five different genes, as you see labeled here. Usher two, moderate sensory neural hearing loss, post-pubertal, classically, onset of retinal dystrophy. I say classically because when you start looking and you start testing at a younger age, you're often able to find stuff pre-puberty. And so that's where we start to get a bit of fragmentation. And the vestibular function is normal. Usher three, generally the hearing loss is later on and the retinal dystrophy is much more variable about when it starts. And again, vestibular function. And, and, and so we know Usher3a is called by Clarin. This Usher3b, Haas, doesn't really fit very nicely into where we expect the Usher proteins to, um, to work. So to understand Usher, you have to understand where the problem is. And so I've shown you two schematics here. On the left, you've got the um, hearing cells, if you like. And out of the top of a hearing cell, are these little stereo cilia, these little motile cilia, and they respond to uh, noise. And that causes movement of the cilia and then that activates and sends uh, messages through the cell. And similarly, in the eye, in the retina, we have two main classes of photoreceptor. These are cells that turn light into an electrical signal. We have the rod cells, which are responsible for your nighttime vision, for your low illumination vision. And we have cone cells, which are responsible for your daytime vision, for your color vision, for your reading vision, okay? And you'll notice in both 
the hearing cell and these rod and cone photoreceptor, there is a connecting cilium. And it's there that we find the vast majority of the Usher proteins expressed. And when we get problems in those Usher genes, it's there that issues start to arise. And so we have this protein network of um, proteins are, are, the, are the, um, the building blocks, if you like, that are made from the instructions, the genes. So the genes make these particular proteins and these particular proteins all interact in that connecting cilium. At least that was the case until we started to discover a number of other colored yellow genes that seem to give an Usher um, presentation, but don't seem to work in quite the same way. And they either modulate the effect of some of these genes that we know, and that kind of fits in, but there are some others that don't seem to fit in at all to the Usher network, and I included ours in that. And, and therefore it gets a bit more confusing as you can imagine. So that's classically what Usher syndrome is. Well, how do you get a diagnosis of Usher syndrome? And well, I, I imagine most of you have walked this path. You have a child classically certainly with Usher type 1, who fails their newborn hearing screen. Um, and so there is a diagnostic algorithm that the audiology services will proceed through. And they'll want to screen out the common things, such as uh, cytomegalovirus, CMV, which is a common cause of sensory neural hearing loss. They might look at one particular gene, connexin 26, or GJB2, um, which again is very commonly a cause of hearing loss. And if there's been a history of prematurity of severely unwell child during that early months of life, there quite a lot of hearing loss is attributed to those, um, to, to, to incidents uh, um, during those early um, hospital episodes. And we know that many children with hearing loss will have an eye problem. And so classically, um, a referral is made to an ophthalmologist relatively early. Now, we're trying to change that a bit, not least because huge amounts of the so-called ophthalmology problems, the eye problems, are really just glasses issues. And those can be sorted out at you know relatively young age by optometrists or in um, screening clinics that we have running with optometrists and, and orthoptists in, um, in hospital. But one rather better way of doing it is actually just to look at all of the genetic causes of hearing loss early. And so uh, with the massive progress that we've been making in our understanding of genomics and the way that we're now doing genetic testing, we're gently pushing audiology to start doing genetic testing earlier. And that may happen before you even get to see an ophthalmologist. You may have a so-called non-syndromic hearing loss panel performed, 
which is increasingly having a turnaround time of three months and you may well end up with a genetic diagnosis and suddenly being told that not only does your child have hearing problems but unfortunately they're also going to develop sight problems too and so i'm now quite commonly getting referrals from my genetics colleagues and from audiologists for me to see patients who've already had a diagnosis of Usher syndrome given. So I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about the eye because clearly I feel on home turf there. Um, I think it's important for us to just quickly have a whip through um, the various structures of the eye. So I'm not um, throwing out terminology that's wholly unfamiliar. So at the front of the eye, the clear dome on the front of the eye, we call the cornea. Behind that sits a little space called the anterior chamber, and then you have the iris, the colour bit of the eye, and in the middle of that, the black dot that you know of, that's the pupil, and that lets light like through an aperture, and it passes through the lens, and the lens does the fine focusing of light through the vitreous gel onto the retina, the film in the back of the camera, if you like. And here you can see histology, a slide of what the retina looks like. And there are a number of different layers, and we don't really need to remember that other than to go back to say that light hits the photoreceptor, either the rods or the cones. The rods, again, as I said, for nighttime vision, the cones for your daytime vision. Now, you'll come to an eye clinic, either with a diagnosis or because you've been referred um, your child's been referred with hearing loss and because we are asked to rule out eye problems. And so there will be a huge range of things that we will do in clinic, both when we see you initially and once we've given you that diagnosis, when you will have these things on repeat, maybe not very often, maybe only once a year, but there are a, a, a whole array of different tests that your child will be facing. And so I'll go through a few of those. And we want to know how the eye is working. Uh, we'll want to look at the eye and do some imaging, and we may want to probe it electrophysiologically as well. So when your child is very small, um, their vision is still very immature, and clearly they can't read letters, they don't understand shapes or forms, and so we tend to use what are called fourth choice preferential looking cards. We hold a large card up in front of a, uh, an infant, and they are magnetically drawn to the more interesting area of the card as indicated by the striped grating that you see there. And so we show a successive series of cards with finer and finer stripes until they cannot distinguish between the boring end of the card and the striped end of the card. And that gives us an idea of their ability to see fine objects. You can see beneath this is a different type of forced choice card. It's called a Cardiff card. I particularly hate these, but they're commonly used in clinic. I think they're horrendously inaccurate. But sometimes you can get a, an older child to point to it and say if they see a house or a train or a fish. So there is some utility. And we can plot these visual norms on a chart, rather like a growth chart, and see how a child is developing according to uh, how they compare with a normal population. And as they get older and they start to become more verbal, 
we can give you matching cards and show you pictures of ducks and fishes and clocks and things and standard as standard distance away. And it starts to become a bit more like the visual acuity test that you know and recognize that whenever you've been to an optician yourself, those are K picture cards. And then of course, we're trying to finally migrate onto a proper letter chart. This is the so-called log mar chart. And then you get a number. And oh gosh, there are so many numbers, aren't there? Look at them all. So many different um, ways that we note down vision. And so I thought when you get a letter and you get all these numbers, it'd probably be worth trying to understand what it means. So the one you're probably all familiar with, because it's always in the films, is your child's got 20-20 vision. And that means that standing at 20 feet, your child can see what a normal person can see standing 20 feet away. But if they had 2200 vision, they could see at 20 feet what a person with normal vision can see standing 200 feet away. Now, we don't use feet in this country, at least I don't, but mostly we use meters. And so we have a metric equivalent. So we say at six meters, we can see what a child, a normal child can see standing 60 meters away. That would be 660, 2200. And in fact, we've kind of moved away from that too. You'll still see them hanging all over Moorfields. If you ever come to Moorfields, they should have gone out with the ark, but they don't, they still hang there. They're quite popular and everyone understands what they mean. But we tend to use at Great Orm Street, we use Logmar, which is a standardized chart. And it means that instead of a chart, a Snellen chart, where you had one letter at the top and eight letters at the bottom, you have on a Logmar chart, five letters on the top line, five letters on the, and every line has five letters and the spacing between each letter is the same. And the size of, the, uh, of, the, of each of those letters gets smaller in a logarithmic scale. So it's a much more fair test. And a log um, goes from, the, the Logmar chart goes from zero, which is equivalent to 66 or 22, uh, 2020, to 1.0, which is equivalent to 660 or 2200. And in fact, even more complicated, and even I struggle with this, is in trials now we count each of those individual letters. And so you have letter scores. And in Europe, they use decimals. So it's bewildering, I get it. And our letters are often very difficult to interpret, but that gives you some idea of uh, the, note, uh, the notation that we use. Now, one of the tests that I know that you're all interested in on is electrophysiology. And this is um, commonly used um, to make a diagnosis when everything looks normal. So when I look in and I see a retina that, to be honest, looks absolutely fine, and yet we have a suspicion that your child might have a retinal dystrophy, then we would choose to perform um, an electroretinogram. And we will also choose to perform a visual evoked potential. So the electroretinogram, which is what you're seeing on the slide at the moment, has a number of different components. And we will flash lights of different intensities and different speeds and different luminances to be able to probe not only the rods, but the cones and the inner retina and the outer retina and some of those interconnecting cells. And we should be able to therefore pinpoint if there is a problem in the retina and what cell type is most affected. So it, it's, it's invaluable and we use it largely for diagnostics. 
we very rarely use it for ongoing um, evaluation of disease progression because it doesn't add a great deal and it's time consuming. And actually we haven't got the capacity to do every one every year or every five years. So it's really a tool for diagnosis. And you can see that we can do it on very tiny children when we use little sticky electrodes on the skin of the eyelids. And in adults, we would tend to use um, gold wire, very, very fine gold wire, which sits, is attached to little uh, sticky pads on the inner and outer canthus of the eye. And then the wire sits down in the inferior fornix of the lid. So we can change the um, paradigm that we use in order to suit the child. And at Great Ormond Street, we're very, very experienced at managing even children who are very, very upset or very developmentally delayed. And we can get some useful information from that to be able to provide a diagnosis. Rob, it's Chloe Joyner of UK here. Hi, just a question on ERG, because I know it comes up so often amongst our, our community. Um, would you expect that any circumstances in which it might need to be repeated, could it be that someone does indeed have ASHA, but perhaps the ERG doesn't give that result first time? Great question. And so you can imagine a scenario where your child has ASHA 2 and it's just cropped up on the genetic report because we're doing genetic testing so young. And we would do, we might do uh, an ERG at the age of two or three or four, and it would be plumb normal. But if we were to test you again, at eight or nine, and you're still asymptomatic, we would probably pick something up then. So yes, there are indications to repeat it. Um, and that's why for me, this, this testing um, has almost become replaced, at least for diagnostic purposes, by genetic testing, because I know what I'm expecting with genetics. Whereas if I, if I do an ERG, I and I don't have any genetics, I don't know if I'm gonna to have to repeat that a few years later. That's why, does that make sense, Chloe? I mean, it's why genetics is, is so important. Yes, it does, thanks, Rob. Okay. So just going on some of the other tests that you might see, color tests, there's Ishihara test plates here, and, and we sometimes do color vision testing, um, and contrast sensitivity testing is a particular favorite of mine because I think it indicates when retinal dystrophies are progressing earlier than when the high contrast letters that you're asked to look at um, um, reduce. And so I, I will often ask for contrast sensitivity testing, uh, which is where you see a chart, a letter the same size, but the letters each get fainter and fainter as you go down and down. And you'll meet doing a lot of these tests are orthoptists. Orthoptists are wonderful people. They've got an interesting history. They, they, uh, they, they came about from the Second World War, actually, when we were trying to identify Spitfire and Hurricane pilots, and we didn't have any means of knowing who could see and who couldn't, and who had stereo vision and could find and land a plane properly. And so the, the profession of orthoptics was born, and they've since expanded out. And they do huge amounts of our uh, vision testing, our eye movement testing, our um, strabismus, squint testing, and they provide a report. And, and it's really the gold standard now for, in, in, certainly in pediatric ophthalmology, the vast majority of patients will be seen by an orthoptist first before they come and see the ophthalmologist um, so that we have a 
a really good idea from a, someone who does visual acuity testing day in, day out, um, what, what the vision is. You can't forget glasses, you mustn't forget glasses. Even in children who've got really, really advanced RP, glasses are so important because you know, it stands to reason you must have focused light on your retina. There is no point in handicapping yourself even further. So, um, so we're always checking regularly to make sure that children um, don't need glasses. And imaging. Imaging's become so important. It's, it's transformed the way that we conduct our clinics because we can see in a single flash this huge view of the retina now. So what you see in the top of the slide there is something called Optos wide field imaging. You can see two pictures. You've got the color on the left and you can make out the little pigment clumps there that's typical of retinitis pigmentosa. And on the right-hand side, you can see a black and white image. And this is called autofluorescence. And autofluorescence is an invaluable test because it tells us where the retina is working, where it's sick, and where it's probably not working and probably dead. So in this image, and this is a patient with Usher syndrome, you can see a ring here, this hyper-autofluorescent ring. And you'll often, if you come and see me, you'll often see in my letters that I'm commenting on that. Because that ring indicates a watershed zone between dying and dead retina, cells that are no longer uh, working at all outside, sick cells that are fluorescing brightly because they're turning over so fast that they're making lots of waste products, and those waste products are what are giving that bright signal, and relatively well-preserved retina in the center there. And then on the image below, what we have is something called optical coherence tomography, OCT. And if you take the retina, the macula, as is highlighted by this green box here, so this is zoomed right in onto that area that I'm showing you in the above patient, and then I am flipping the retina on its side, and you can see all the layers of the retina. And if you look carefully at the bottom, there, is a, there are three lines, bright white lines, and you can see how they're present at the center of the image at this little dip, which is called the foveal pit. But when we move outside, those lines start to peter out and then become absent. And those lines are the photoreceptors, the cells that are, are affected by Usher syndrome, by retinitis pigmentosa. So you can see from this imaging how we are able to monitor the progress of disease as the ring slowly gets smaller. Every few years, you'll notice it getting a little bit smaller. And that line, that bright white line gets narrower and that reflects the progress of the condition. And it is very slow. And I, I want to pause at this moment just to give you a, figures that I, I often tell parents, I mean, many of you who, who are under me will have heard me say this before, but I think it is useful natural history data. And it's, it's quite old now, but it's, uh, for me, it's, it's quite comforting, which is to say that with type one Usher syndrome, we know that 50% of patients will retain 612. So that means that 
patient can see at six meters what someone with normal vision can see standing 12 meters away. They can see 612 until the age of 50. So half of Usher 1 patients will still be able to see 612 by the age of 50. With Usher 2, two-thirds of patients will retain 612 or better in at least one eye until the age of 50. And so, you know, often patients and parents will come to me really understandably distraught, thinking that, that the world is going to be very different for them than the one that they'd imagined for their child. And I, and I offer that by way of some comfort, which is to say that, you know, many children will have a very different life to the one that you're, you would have imagined. But there is still a really valuable, useful vision for many, many years for many of our patients. So you've either received a genetic test um, or you've come to me and we've instituted genetic testing and you'll get a report. And so what I thought I'd do is I'd walk through a report here. Um, and so I'm just going to shrink this down. Um, what you'll see at the top, generally, if the report has come back having found something, is that the findings are consistent with, in this case, Usher syndrome type 2A. But it may well say Usher syndrome type 1. It may say there are no findings, uh, no genetic findings. But if you've got a positive test, then underneath it, there will be a whole string of letters and numbers. And so hopefully I can explain that a little bit. So in italics, you've got USH2A, which is the name of the gene. Following that, you've got a C. And that means that at the DNA level, at position 5422 in this patient, the letter G has been substituted with a T. And that means that the P, which is the protein, the protein has changed. And the protein should be at that position, a glutamate, glue, but it's been changed to something called a star, which, is a, which basically means nothing. It doesn't work. It doesn't translate into any protein, okay? And because Usher syndrome is a recessive disease, you need to have two copies, both of your copies affected. And so the second um, change that's been found here, much further down, this, much this bigger number here means it's a long way further down the gene. Again, a, uh, the G has changed to an A, and that changes tryptophan to another nothing. And that means both of those changes are going to be causing the, the disease. Okay, and so here are the two spelling mistakes. Heterozygous means that one copy, one copy is this change here, the one we've just been talking about, and it's classified as pathogenic. The second heterozygous second copy, remember we have two copies of every gene, one that you got from your mum, one that you got from your dad. And so in Usher, you need to have both affected to have the disease. And so the other copy uh, has got this particular spelling mistake and it's been classified as pathogenic. Um, if you need more detail on this, this is a great site that Retina UK have published, just trying to 
decode a lot of the really complex terminology that you'll find in, um, in genetics. But you're not expected really to do this on your own. You are expected that you will have contact with a genetics counselor. And so I have a genetics counselor, Catherine, who some of you will have met or talked to. Moorfields have huge numbers. Manchester um, have some fabulous genetics counselors. Uh, and so um, you should not be doing this translating alone, but just so you have some idea of what it, what it all means. Okay. Rob, it's Chloe from Asha Kitchen. Hey, um, yeah. Just a few questions on, on oh. diagnosis. Um, yeah. You sounds like it's very important to have both the clinical and the genetic diagnosis. If we have families where perhaps they seem stuck in the system and only have one of those two, what would you suggest that they do? Um, so I think um, it's unlikely, I think, to have a genetic diagnosis and not have seen a, an ophthalmologist or an audiologist and or a geneticist, clinical geneticist, and had the opportunity to talk about that. Something would have gone wrong if that's the case. I'm not saying that things don't go wrong. I'm slightly sad to say I'm pretty sure things do go wrong from time to time. And if you happen to be in possession of a genetics report and have no idea what it means, but it, this is what, you know, this is where you are and you haven't got any appointments to see anyone, um, I would strongly su suggest that you reach out to Chloe and Chloe can reach out to me, but also to your GP and ask them to get a referral to your local um, to your local centre. And, and those centres should be where you know, the big units are for genetic testing. Um, and, and you'll probably find that you'll see both audiology and ophthalmology there in that unit. And that would be Manchester or Oxford or, or us at, down in London. But I mean, there are lots of units around. So, you, you know, you could you can go to um, other other centres around the country, but those are the three uh, the three biggest probably. Okay, that's helpful. And with ophthalmology, the same in terms. So of yes, and so if you've got an ophthalmologist, if you've got a genetic, if you have got a clinical diagnosis of Usher syndrome and haven't been offered testing, that's much more. Yeah, that's a much more common scenario, particularly I suspect for older patients um, who probably aren't on this call. But if they were on this call. And you and you have been given a clinical diagnosis, but never had it confirmed genetically. Times are a changing, and everyone should now have access to a genetic test. And again, you um, should have no difficulty asking your GP to for a referral either to your local clinical geneticist. Okay, so your um, so there'll be clinical genetic centres in every area around the country, and your GP should know where that regional genetic centre is, or to one of the larger um, genetic testing centers um, where we can institute testing very easily. Does that? Does Absolutely, that yeah. Thank you, Rob. A couple of other questions that have just popped in. Mm. Um, one is if an individual has one known Usher mutation, but perhaps another from the other parent that is, isn't yet known, yeah. does that affect the diagnosis? Yeah, it does. Well, <sighs> Okay, so it doesn't at a clinical level. If you've got congenital sensory neural hearing loss and you've got um, an early onset retinal dystrophy and you've got one pathogenic variant in USH1, let's say in myosin 7a or one of the USH1 genes, but the second 
either cannot be found or, and this is more common, is a variant of unknown significance. So I, I'm gonna pause there just for two seconds to explain. So we classify the variants that we find from one to five, where one is a benign change that makes up the differences between you and me, why I've got no hair and Chloe's got lots of hair. All of these little changes are benign, okay? Class five is an absolute bond or pathogenic that missense change from a G to a T causes a change in the protein and that cannot cause a functional protein uh, to be made. And we know that's pathogenic, so that's class five. Class four is likely pathogenic. We've seen it in other patients. We, uh, it's been published about, it's rare, you know, you only find it, this particular change in large population databases in affected individuals. You don't find it in unaffected individuals. So that's likely pathogenic. We're pretty happy with that, so that's fine. The real problem comes about with the class three ones where we just don't know. And that's the scenario that you're describing there that is quite common. Um, and does it change anything? No, I, you know, as a clinician, I know when I'm seeing a patient with Usher syndrome. But where it does make a difference, not quite yet, but it's gonna make a difference down the line. When we have more gene specific therapies, we're going to need two class four or class five changes in order to be able to deliver a treatment. And so we already have that with the one gene therapy that's available on the NHS that I, that I deliver, you know, there have been patients that I have had where I've had one class five change, I'm happy. I know this patient's got RP65, which is the particular gene, but the second variant is a class three and it causes a real headache. So it is, it, is it important? Yes, it is. Does it make a difference to the, to the clinical findings? No, it doesn't. Um, but you can see, I, and I understand, we all understand where, where these, uh, where this sort of these questions arise. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, and it sounds like that's cropped up in our, our chat as we've been discussing. So I think that's a really important question for parents. Um, and it helps us all realise how important it is we get that full genetic diagnosis so that we have all the information to know, you know, the, the quality of information is, is being contributed to, I guess, by our own data. Um, we're Absolutely. adding to that pool of data that's available. A few other questions that have cropped up about mm -hmm. um, genetic testing. One is um, whether it's likely that this um, ophthalmology diagnosis using that genetic testing that you referred to, or perhaps being triggered earlier as a result of the genetic testing, might bring the vision diagnosis into the same sort of time scale that we see with newborn hearing screening. Could we expect to be diagnosing infants so young? Um, so that's a really pertinent question. Um, the answer, the, the reason I say it's pertinent is because I've just been approached by um, Genomics England to help run a neonatal gen uh, whole genome screening program. So we're going to look at 100,000 neonates who've got no signs of any problems. I mean, they might, but most likely not. And we may well tell a parent who wasn't expecting anything, who's got a child in, who is, as far as they know, asymptomatic that they may have a diagnosis or they have a genetic diagnosis at least of RH1 or RH2 or something like that. And, and that, that clearly is, you know, an era that's, that's coming. Now, at the moment, we're pushing back a little bit 
and saying we really only want to make that diagnosis if we've got a treatment that we can offer. Otherwise, what value is it to parents? Now, you could argue for us one, there is value. There is value in knowing early about um, the congenital sensory neural hearing loss and therefore being able to, impl uh, to do cochlear implant. Is there likely to come a time when gene-specific treatments can be delivered that young so as to prevent any deterioration in disease in the first place? I don't know. It's possible. I have to say that I think at the moment, unlikely, but certainly it is important to get an early diagnosis because I think establishing how long a window we have to be able to intervene is, is really important. And we'll, we'll come back to that when we talk about natural history studies with James a bit later. Um, so do I think that we're going to be making an ophthalmology diagnosis as, as newborns? Probably not yet, but it will come shortly thereafter with genetic testing becoming more prevalent from, you know, in the audiology um, community for sure. Thank you, Rob. Uh, a few more questions around diagnosis, and um, perhaps this is an easier one. Is genetic testing completed as part of the cochlear implant referral process? Um, certainly it is with us, uh, yes. Um, all patients are referred for genetic testing by the cochlear implant team. Great, thank you. Um, another question, how common is it to receive a clinical diagnosis of Usher syndrome, but the genetic cause can't be identified? through genetic testing? Um, rare, but it does happen. Um, rare because... <laughs> Sorry, could you just repeat that question again? I just missed it, thank you. Absolutely, it's Chloe from Usher Kids. The question was, how common is it to receive um, a diagnosis, but it can't be confirmed through current genetic testing? Um, and the answer to that is that it's rare but yes it does happen rare because the majority of changes that we find in usher syndrome are associated with the known genes but as i alluded to earlier there are some ultra rare genes that are becoming better understood and um they were historically unsolved patients and you know we looked through all of the usher genes that we knew of, and they had all the clinical appearances of Usher syndrome, and yet we couldn't find a change in one of the known genes. And, and it's through that process of whole genome testing and looking for candidate genes that we found some of these other rarer genes that, um, that are loosely affiliated with the Usher network, but aren't directly involved. Um, so yes, it does happen. And, and there's, a, there's another scenario where it happens from time to time, which is that you have, you may have spelling mistakes in the gene, but we don't understand those spelling mistakes, or we have spelling mistakes upstream of the, of the known genes, and we just don't know what they are. We don't know what they do, because there's large areas of the genome that probably is doing stuff that's affecting the way that genes are turned on and off, but we really don't have a very good understanding of those yet. So there is a it's not terribly common, and I should know off the top of my head what our diagnosis rate is, and I and I can't remember it. 
uh, for Russia, it, it's pretty high. I mean, I think it's sort of it's ninety percent, but I, I, I suspect there are there are a, a chunk of patients in whom we can't yet make a genetic diagnosis. Thank you, Rob. Chloe again from Asha Kids UK. We have two more on diagnosis, and then we'll we'll move on to thinking about life after diagnosis. Um, one is around whether it's useful to go back further into family history when we're running those genetic tests. Um, does it help to have more information beyond perhaps the immediate parents into grandparents, for example? So um, I always take a family history because I think it is enormously helpful. Um, and I think um, more often than not, um, unless you have or come from a consanguineous family, a consanguineous family is one where relatives um, marry or have children together. But for the majority of patients in the UK, at least with Usher syndrome, um, this comes out of the blue. And that's because we all carry spelling mistakes in our genes. And we probably have seven or eight of them on average. But because you have a second copy of the gene that you got from your other parent, you don't have any problems. But just once in a while, you're unlucky. You have kids with someone who happens to also be carrying a spelling mistake in exactly the same gene. And then you have a one in four chance of you handing on your copy and your partner handing on their copy and uh, having a child with with Usher syndrome, and that's what we call autosomal recessive disease. And so often you look back through the family and there's no one, it's come from nowhere. And that's, that's the reason. Thank you. And in terms of genetic testing, would you encourage broader um, family members, wider family members? So only um, if there is reason to believe that there might be an associated condition. I'm um, but the difficulty comes about when you've got younger siblings. So let's say you have, um, I mean, with Usher syndrome, <laughs> the truth is that the hearing loss is often a big clue as to whether or not you've got a problem. So it's less of a, a diagnostic issue in Usher because we've got a, a symptom that is so very obvious. And so it points to who should be tested in a family and who shouldn't in other forms of RP where the disorder, the disorder doesn't start till much later, it's, it becomes a much more knotty issue as to whether you should be testing younger siblings, for example, before they become symptomatic. Um, so generally I don't advocate why wholesale testing of wider family unless there is um, a good reason uh, to do it. Thank you. And I think one last question. Um, just exploring diagnosis. If genetic testing shows a pathogenic mutation and a variant of unknown significance, but the child doesn't yet have a clinical presentation of RP symptoms, how would that affect their diagnosis? Um, so the scenario is a, is a good one to pose. Um, so let's say you have a child who has, again, profound sensory neural hearing loss, and yet, and, and has those genetic findings, but hasn't yet presented um, with any RP, which is not uncommon, um, especially in the younger child, they may well not have any symptoms at all yet. 
Now in those, I would often do electrophysiology and electrophysiology will tell me at least two, maybe even three years ahead of time, whether there is a um, functional problem of, uh, in the retina that has yet to cause any significant symptoms. So that would be the approach I would take. Um, it is possible though, uncommon, but possible that by chance, the child happens to carry a pathogenic variant in Usher, but has a wholly unrelated cause of deafness and is entirely asymptomatic and will always be asymptomatic from the eye point of view because it isn't Usher syndrome at all. It's an unusual situation and one that would really have us scratching our heads and really sweating a bit. So we have multidisciplinary team meetings between the clinical geneticists, between the bioinformaticians in the lab, between us as clinicians, and we all get together and discuss exactly this sort of scenario. Um, and we'd have to do a lot of very careful testing to, to say to you, for sure, we do not think this is Usher syndrome. Um, so generally my hunch would still be, I think this is probably what's coming down the line and let's do electrophysiology um, to see if we can detect any of those eye problems. Um, but uh, I can envisage a rare scenario <laughs> where uh, we find nothing, we continue to monitor and never find any eye problems. And actually it's not Usher, it's something totally different. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate you spending time on those. It's a tricky area, and it sounds mm -hmm. like with increased genetic testing, there's going to be even more of those mm. um, scenarios potentially to, to consider. Thank you. I'll leave you to move on to your next section now. Okay. So what do I do once I have a diagnosis? Um, we're lucky, at least I'm lucky. For those of you that have come to my clinic, I have, um, I have an ECLO whose name's Paula. Paula has RP and she's an invaluable support for parents um, because that diagnosis is, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you, I think I've ever managed to give it and not feel a little crushed on behalf of the parents who all of you, it's, it's one of the most difficult days of your lives, I should imagine. And so knowing who to turn to, who to talk to, where to get information, and then how to contribute as you go forward, as you adjust, as you go through the grieving process, which it is undoubtedly a grieving process that you go through. As you come out the other side, you know, how do you help? How do you support? Where do you go? And, and there are, as Chloe and as all of, you know, the Retina UK team here um, who, are, who are there for you, um, they have, you know, a vast array of resources. And so I use our ECLO. Um, I will register children early with... Um, Sight in vision, uh, sight um, uh, uh, with CVI registration. Sorry, um, so certificates of visual impairment. Um, I will want 
the VI teaching, the VI team, and often the MSI team to be involved early. Um, and as many of you know, we, we run a, a dual sensory clinic at GOSH, specifically for Usher patients, for Nori patients, for other patients who have both sight and hearing loss. And, um, you know, we will, we haven't yet managed to get, but we are getting sense who are the charity, um, who, uh, you know, who are also incredibly helpful and they're going to have team members who are going to come in um, and, and be there to support. And, and there are lots of other um, agencies. There are lots of other charities. Um, I know Chloe would, would be very keen for everyone to sign up with the Usher registry, which is a voluntary registry, so that we know where patients are, so that if we have a treatment that we can reach out and, and be in touch. Um, and, and be getting involved in research. Getting involved in research is, is hugely important. And if you have the time and the energy and you're prepared to help us move things forward, uh, you know, we are massively grateful. And so I know James is going to speak very shortly at the end about natural history studies and things. And we have the ongoing bioresource study, which is uh, we're currently recruiting to. And my colleague Maria Musaji has a number of uh, studies and trials. So um, getting involved in research, I think, you know, if you if you can, brilliant. Um, so I'm actually, that seems an opportune moment to pause and get James to chime in if you're happy to, James. So I'll stop sharing. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you very much, Rob. And um, so I'll just um, spend about five minutes talking about um, natural history studies at this stage. Um, so I'm James Rafinski. I'm an ophthalmology registrar, which is an ophthalmologist, but a few grades uh, below consultant like Rob. Um, and I'm doing a PhD at the moment under the supervision of Rob and uh, a professor of developmental biology called Professor Salton at UCL. And in my PhD, I'm looking at um, genetic retinal disease and trying to work out or trying to look at some strategies for intervention in terms of gene therapy for some of these diseases. And I'm also working on a natural history study or setting up a natural history study of inherited eye and ear conditions that we're hoping to run between Great Ormond Street Hospital and Moorfields. And um, it's for that reason that Chloe's asked me to explain a little bit about what natural history studies are and why they're important, why we do them. Um, so to start off, what is a natural history study? Um, well, it's basically a, a really comprehensive evaluation of any particular condition. So, for example, in, in Usher, we know that sight and hearing is affected. And so what we would do at each visit is perform a large number of detailed measurements to try to evaluate what's happening with the sight and the hearing in quite a lot more detail than you might need to do uh, just to look after you as an individual patient. So for example, we might um, look at how the cells, but Rob was alluding to the photoreceptors and the hair cells in the ear. So in Usher, we may look at how those cells uh, change over time um, on, on scans of the eye, for example, and, um, and how they stop working properly in the early stages of the disease. Um, we'll also do measurements of function. So for example, um, look at the sharpness of your vision, which is essentially reading down an optician's chart, um, look, but there's other ways of looking at vision as well. So for example, looking at the visual fields, and we know that the peripheral vision uh, may be affected before the central vision in Usher. Um, and and we'd, we'd also look at electrical tests 
um, and look at how the messages that are being conveyed by sound to the ear and by light to the eye are converted into electrical signals by those cells and passed on to the brain. And so the, the difference between just coming to clinic and having routine investigations and being in a natural history study um, as a patient is that you'll have many more detailed tests. Um, the tests will tend to be organized in a really uh, structured and kind of repetitive way. And that helps us to follow up very precisely what's happening over time. Whereas um, coming to clinic and being seen um, either by the same doctor or maybe different doctors, you may have slightly different tests uh, each time, depending on what your needs are at that moment, but it may not be so useful looking back to try and really get a detailed picture of how your condition has developed over time. Um, and, um, you know, we might do these tests even if you're, even if you're uh, not in a study, but we tend to only do the ones that either are necessary to give you a diagnosis. So, for example, doing an electrophysiology test of, of uh, an electroretinogram, um, or the ones that are relevant to your treatment at the time. And in a natural history study, we're much more interested not only in looking after you as an individual, but also understanding more about the condition. The other big difference between being in a natural history study and, and, um, and not um, is that the data that we gather can be shared with a whole team of researchers um, who assimilate your data and data from other patients to try to work out what the bigger picture is and what's actually going on. And if you come to clinic and you're not in a study, your doctor isn't allowed to share that information with researchers because it's, it's confidential, of course. So by entering the study, you're giving them permission to share, share the information with, with uh, other researchers. Um, so why, why do we want to do natural history studies? Um, well, the, the first most basic reason is simply to understand more about the condition. So from every patient, um, you'll get a glimpse of what's going on, but it's only by combining data from many patients that you can really understand the condition in detail and start to give a prognosis, for example, to someone who's just been diagnosed um, and give them a reasonably confident picture as to what might happen. And this is how, going back to sort of some of the very early studies, this is how we know that uh, um, uh, type one um, is associated with, um, for example, earlier, more rapid uh, sight loss and, and type two isn't and so on. Um, it's also helpful because um, we can, uh, if we, if we can uh, work out what the natural history is that's associated with a particular genetic change, if we see that genetic change and you have a natural history or, or you, have a, you have changes in your retina and your, in your hearing that match that genetic change in, in other patients, we can be that little bit more confident that this change is actually really causing your disease. And that's important when you're working out whether this is something that you could pass to your children or not, or in future, uh, maybe entering uh, clinical trials of gene therapy, um, because gene therapy is most likely going to be targeted to individual mutations. And there are many that cause Usher syndrome. Um, understanding the condition can also help us to work out what's going on at a basic biological level. And although we know quite a lot of that already, it's surprising how much we don't know as to what's actually happening inside those cells that's um, stopping them from working. And so uh, as an interesting example, there was a, a case reported where um, there were two siblings um, who were not identical, um, but who both had the same USH2A mutation um, from their parents. Um, they both lost hearing but only one lost their vision. And um, it was sort of interesting to look at why, and it, it turned out that it's probably because of 
some other mutations that, uh, that one of the children had and the other didn't in other genes that interacted with this, with, with the changes that you see in Usher syndrome. And that actually can then um, act as a springboard to allow scientists to look at, well, what, what are those other genes doing in the context of Usher and potentially even lead to new treatment ideas that hadn't been thought of before. Um, thirdly, and this is, this is relevant to um, trials of, of gene therapy. Um, so if you're going to try um, a, a genetic therapy for Usher syndrome, and, and there's, there's one example of a, of a gene therapy for retinitis pigmentosa, which is currently approved and in use, that's for a different condition called labor congenital amaurosis. And um, it's, it's a good example to look at to see how um, gene therapies are tried and how they eventually, hopefully come into, into use. And before that study can begin, you have to decide what your endpoints are going to be. And endpoints is basically means what are you going to measure to work out whether the treatment's working or not. Um, and in the example of, of labor congenital amaurosis, they actually had to develop an entirely new test that ophthalmologists didn't routinely do before, which is um, seeing how children navigate through a, a maze um, in dim lighting conditions. And that's the way that they worked out whether this treatment was working or not. And so some of the natural history studies that have already been done in Usher syndrome have identified which measures ranging from, you know, taking measurements on scans to um, electrical tests of a vision to behavioral tests, which ones are actually uh, useful to try and evaluate whether the Usher syndrome has progressed or not. And also how quickly do they change? Because ideally what you want is to measure something that's going to change quite quickly and therefore you might only need to continue the study for a year or so to work out whether the treatment's working. Whereas if you're looking at something that changes over a decade, progress is going to be very slow. Um, and, um, and, and, and finally, it's important um, when you're selecting patients for trials. So once you have a treatment, you hope to be able to offer it to everybody who has the mutation in, in, the, in the gene that that treatment um, is designed for. Um, but that's not the same. As Sorry, patients. James, could you just slow down a little bit, please? You go. Thank you. Sorry. Um, when you're selecting patients for, for trials, you tend to select quite a, a specific cohort of patients. And the reason for that is that you want to choose patients um, who are going to help you to answer the question as to whether your treatment is working or not as quickly as possible. So that generally means that there's no other eye problems which will interfere with the results of working out whether the treatment works or not. It generally means choosing patients who are in a stage of disease where the progression is quite rapid. And it may mean choosing patients with um, slightly more severe disease, for example. And this also leads into the idea of a, a therapeutic window. So in all conditions, um, or in many conditions, um, there's a pre-symptomatic phase, which means that uh, you have the condition, but it hasn't caused you any problems yet. Then you start to develop symptoms. And then what may happen over time, and in the case of Usher quite slowly, is that um, the uh, retinal and cochlear function declines. But it doesn't just carry on declining forever. Eventually, it's likely to reach a stage where uh, perhaps you have quite severe loss uh, in, in some cases, but it will then stabilize. Um, and when you're looking at um, 
designing a, a trial, you want to choose patients who are in that phase of disease where they, they do have degeneration, which you're trying to prevent, um, and it's actually going rapidly enough for you to be able to, to detect that change over quite a short period of time. That doesn't then mean that the treatment can only be used in patients like that, but it's just the group that will help you to answer the question most quickly as to whether this treatment is, is working or not. Um, and, and furthermore, when you're choosing patients, once the treatment is licensed and is a approved treatment that's available for everyone, um, you want to be able to tell based on someone's genetic change whether their disease is likely to be stable or not at the time you see them. So for example, if someone who's 25 comes to clinic and they have Usher and they have retinitis pigmentosa, you may be able to say based on the genetic change that they have, that actually they're not likely to experience much significant uh, degeneration from that point on, in which case putting them through surgery to treat the condition may not be helpful to them. And it's only through natural history studies that you'd be able to make that distinction. And so an obvious question that comes up is, well, if, if, if I'm someone who has Usher, is it important for me to be in a natural history study? And the answer is, is really yes and no, unfortunately. So it doesn't really matter whether you're in a natural history study or not in terms of benefiting from the learning that comes from a natural history study, because anything that's learnt in a natural history study will tend to be published in the scientific literature that's then available to every doctor and actually every, every patient as well. Um, however, some patients take, and everyone's different in this respect, some patients take the view that, okay, I have a quite a rare condition, and actually there's not many people who are going to be in the position that I am to, to try to assist with this um, uh, sort of global fight to learn as much as possible about it and, and then develop a, a treatment. So some patients kind of feel this sense of responsibility. Some patients are interested in taking part because you do get, you get to learn a little bit more perhaps about um, exactly how things are changing in your, in your eyes or ears. Um, and other patients may want to just have what's necessary to um, give them the best uh, outcome possible, but will not be interested in um, spending any more, any extra minute in clinic that's not required. And, and all of those um, positions are, are reasonable and, and that's why everyone's different. So some people will, will benefit from being in a, in a natural history study and others won't. And in terms of whether you need to be in a natural history study to participate in a gene therapy trial, so the answer to that is also no, because we don't like to um, select against people um, just because they didn't sort of enter our, our study. And, and, and we try to provide equitable access to, 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 to all of the studies. Um, sometimes it's helpful for a hospital to have gathered natural history data on, on some of the cohort of patients who are being treated in that hospital um, when, it, when, when a gene therapy trial begins, because some of the data you need will have already been collected. And so an example of that is the, the RUSH-2A natural history study um, feeding into Celeste and Sirius, which are um, RUSH-2A gene I'm, I'm really sorry, James. There's the, the something 2A. I keep missing what you're saying at the beginning. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, so... Um, USH2A is a genetic is USH USH and Thank then you. confusingly there's a natural history study called RUSH2A with an R um, which is which is called the, the rate of progression in USH2A 
So that's uh, a little bit confusing with the terminology there. But, um, and so um, the, 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 the rush to a um, natural history study has fed, which, which is a, a study across many sites um, uh, centered in America, but also Moorfield is, is involved, has kind of fed into the Celestin Sirius gene therapy studies, which are, which are looking at treatment for a very specific mutation within USH2A, um, but a very small number, well, quite a small number of people have. Um, and that's an example of a natural history study feeding into a, a gene therapy trial. And so finally, just to uh, talk about the study that I'm hoping to set up with Robert, Great Ormond Street and Moorfields. Um, so in our study, we're interested in looking at, at all patients, but we're particularly uniquely positioned to look at very early disease and um, because of where we are at Great Ormond Street. And this is a, an area that is not so well studied. So looking at the very early changes that happen in Usher syndrome, and um, working out in the future um, as to when the optimal therapeutic window or optimal timing could be for intervention in Usher syndrome. Do you have to treat as soon as you get the diagnosis or um, is it okay to leave things for a few years and then treat perhaps once, once a child's a little bit older? Um, and, and we also feel that everyone should have the opportunity to be enrolled. So because Usher syndrome is quite rare, um, in our view, it would be nice if, if the majority of patients who had a diagnosis of Usher had the opportunity to be enrolled in a study. And when you then break down Usher, not only into the three main groups that were described based on symptoms, but also into the handful of genes that are affected and the thousands of different changes within each gene that can cause it, you can see that there are so many different um, variations that cause Usher, and, and each one of them potentially could have a different prognosis. And so it really is important to try to capture as many different patients as possible in the data set, and you, you can never really have enough. Um, and, and finally, we'll also be um, asking a very small group of patients if they will be happy for us to take some cells, um, which we would then grow in the lab and test new treatments on. Um, and, and those cells are very special because they come from someone who has Usher syndrome. And so they're not cells we can just get from, from anywhere. Um, they're, they're actually quite, quite difficult to, to get. And they en enable us to, um, to test uh, treatments on those cells in the lab without having to um, sort of go straight to, straight to patients, which is very helpful. Um, so that's really it. I'd be happy to answer any questions about either the study that we're planning to set up or natural history studies in general. Um, so, and thanks for giving me the chance to, to join you. Thank you, James. It's Chloe here from Usher Kids UK. It's really helpful to have that detailed explanation of natural history studies. I think we often hear the term, but it's great to understand how that connects with progress towards treatments. Um, so thanks ever so much for setting that out. If anyone has any questions um, for James or for Rob, please feel free to put them into the q and I'm going to... Um, ask Rob if he'll join us again and I'll fire some questions at him that have come from our community in the build-up to this session. Um, so Rob if you're ready. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, um, one of the questions is thinking about when we come to clinic and we're often peering over your shoulder as parents of children affected by Usher syndrome when we when you see the results from the test and the images 
Um, we often, you mentioned the pigmentation that's visible on some of the, the images that are taken. Is there a direct relationship between the amount of pigmentation that you can see on those images and the functional vision of that individual? That's a great question. <clears throat> um, pigment itself, no. In fact, pigment's a fairly late sign of um, disease. Um, you earlier get before the pigment, you get little white, fine granular white dots is, is quite common. Um, but the, so, so I don't tend to spend much time looking at the pigment. It doesn't tell me a great deal. Um, but that autofluorescent, hyper-autofluorescent ring that I look for on the autofluorescence imaging, that's very much more um, accurate at telling us how much the disease has progressed. And we can look together, and I often, almost always, will take last year's and this year's, and I'll put the two side by side, and we look at them together. And that gives us an idea of how much the visual field has shrunk, if at anything at all. And, and we can go back and look over many years, like, you know, if I've seen you five years ago, and you can see the, the rate of progression. And often, you know, it is very slow. Um, and that's quite helpful, I think, for parents. But no, pigment itself, not a great, not, not a great uh, sign. Thank you, Rob. And that um, test is the AF test, is that right? The autofluorescence, okay. Right. So right. it sounds like that's an important test to try and have on regular um, tests. Yeah. That's an OCT. So the other one where we flip the retina on its side, that's hugely helpful. One, for being able to see the photoreceptors, but two, as the disease progresses, not uncommonly, you get swelling in the retina itself. We call this macular edema. And that's a, a very common reason for vision starting to decline. And it is, to a certain extent, treatable. I say a certain extent, the drops that we have for the macular edema associated with RP are only quite good, but they do at least do something for some patients. Thank you, Rob. Next question. Um, we know that um, the rate of progression is hard to predict, but are there any factors that tend to accelerate progression, thinking of puberty or, or anything else that's relevant? Now you asked this question when we were meeting up and I thought I'd better go and have a quick read because my sense is, and it is anecdotal, that there are definitely some children who have told me that their disease has got worse during puberty, that there was an, an acceleration. And I certainly know um, of patients with RP who have had periods of significant systemic unwellness, they've been sick for whatever reason, and that has coincided with a quite rapid deterioration in the progression of the disease. So there's no doubt, I think, at least, I know that systemic disease, does puberty do it? Well, I went and looked at the literature and there's really very little on it out there. So it's a question that needs answering. Um, I don't know that there's a solution to it, and I'm not sure I want children to be afraid of puberty. <laughs> so, um, but it, it is something. It is certainly something that I've heard before, and, and patients have mentioned to it to me in the past. James, maybe one to explore in your natural history study. Um, talking about anyway, but I mean there are modifiable things, of course. Um, you know, and you'll hear me go on the the the, the diet things the not smoking, 
the probably wearing decent UV protect, sun protection. Those are sort of modifiable things that I think probably do make a bit of a difference. Um, and I, so we always use, usually have a little chat around that. I've, I've purposely left a lot of that for, because I know you're having another webinar uh, and I'm sure Maria will, uh, will address some of this stuff at, in that. Um, yeah. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, that's quite right. We're having another um, webinar that we're fo focusing more on research. That's on the 12th of July, the same time, and that's with Maria Musaji. Um, also based at Moorfields, gosh, um, with lots of experience in both research and the clinic. Thanks, Rob. Um, when, when families or individuals come to clinic, is there anything helpful that they could be letting you know about, things that they could keep an eye out on for their children or for themselves at home um, that you'd want to know about, you know, for example, headaches, um, anything else? Um, so, I mean, from my perspective, um, I, what I want to know is how is the child coping? Um, I, I mean, I, I think I see my role not only as making a diagnosis, but also of making sure that no child falls behind, that the children have all of the support they need, both at school and at home, and that they have all the information they need to be able to adjust to the disease that they have. And those are the three you know, roles that I feel that I can fulfill. So if parents can come to me and tell me how the child is doing at school, have talked to their teachers and found out, you know, where are the difficulties? Um, are there any? Are they coping admirably? Have they got all the technology they need? All these things, anything that will therefore then help me to help them, uh, I think, is, is probably what I would ask of, of parents. So have a think before you come to clinic. What is it you want to know? Um, if your child's struggling and they're struggling emotionally or and parents or maybe you know having difficulties talking to their children about it that's a that's a common one for me you know how do i talk to my child about this think about what what it is that you want to gain from the appointment and i think um actually coming with those questions in mind having thought about it a bit is is actually very helpful because it allows me to be a lot more directed um when, when you come Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. And if anyone is um, thinking through that question, we do have some resources on Usher Kids UK website around talking to your child around their diagnosis. And those are tips that have come from parents with experience. So hopefully families would find that useful. Question we've had from our audience. If a family is referred to the dual sensory clinic at Gosh, Great Ormond Street, can they still keep some services locally? For example, um, cochlear implant services to save travel. Definitely, definitely. Please, I, we literally cannot see every child with Usher in the country. Our role um, is not to be, I mean, our role is there to support as many people who need to come and see us. And, and, and it's certainly not to, to say to people, don't come. I, I'm delighted and um, would love to meet you know, as many of you as we can, but we clearly do not have the capacity to see everyone. And indeed, so what we do is that we triage every referral and we have a little MDT between the lead audiologist, who's a lady called Wahida Bagaka, um, myself and the clinical geneticist who's um, called Emma Clement. And we will go through each one and see what is it that you need from us? Um, now, um, sometimes it's help with a genetic diagnosis. Um, sometimes rarely 
its audiology support. Wahida's particular interest is actually vestibular function, and many units don't have vestibular testing facilities. And so we can definitely help with that. But we are absolutely adamant, you know, you keep your you keep your local audiology services. They are invaluable. And more often than not, they'll they'll be doing everything that you need and you don't need us for that. So we're really there just to plug the gaps in either your knowledge or to help make a diagnosis. And we get some, you know, rare, rare, super rare conditions, which is, you know, what we were around to do. And then some, you know, we're there for support. Uh, and we're very happy to see you, but we would very much like to share care rather than say, you're all ours. <laughs> Thanks, Rob, that's helpful. Um, and, and a similar question, which is someone's asking whether they should ask for their child to be referred into GOSH or to Moorfields, where would be most appropriate? There may be other families wondering, I'm based in Manchester, should I refer, or should we come to London? What would um, you say? So no, Manchester has a, um, and Chloe will know this, uh, Manchester has a fabulous unit. Um, they're incredibly lucky. Their genetics counsellor is a legend. Uh, they've got some amazing clinicians there. I would never say come down from Manchester to us. It's a long old way. And you only come, you know, to, to Great Ormond Street if either you're from the south or you've got something rare that you don't feel like you're getting the answers to locally. Um, so if you need help and support, that's what we're there for. Um, if you feel like you can't access the care you need, you come to see us. But there are lots of really good local units and you don't need to come all the way down to see us uh, unless there's something very specific that you want from us. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thanks, Rob. And um, I'll squeeze, we have just, just over five minutes left. So I'll squeeze a few more questions in. Feel free to add any more via the Q&A um, and we'll pick those up. One that popped up today on our, our family chat um, on Facebook was around sleep and mm. several parents noticing that their child can find it difficult to get to sleep um, and wondering whether this is connected to their Usher syndrome. Um, any thoughts that you have on that? Okay, um, it, it's a not uncommon question and it's a really quite tricky one to unpick actually. Um, so we know that children who have very profound blindness can sleep like babies. And others who have not great vision, but they've certainly got plenty there, have awful sleep. So there is a role for the light entrainment that we get from our pineal gland that secretes melatonin. And there is a role for children who have got bad sleep issues for trying melatonin. But you have to unpick other things like, how is the child's anxiety level when the lights go down? Have you got enough night lights around? Are you, uh, is the child feeling safe and supported? Do they know where the loo is? Can they find their way there in the middle of the night? These are the things that, you know, creep in and cause children anxiety and are often as much of a reason for poor sleep as having um, abnormal melatonin production. So we, we spend a bit of time sometimes just unpicking some of those issues and I'm not a, you know, I don't have any issue with, with talking about melatonin and prescribing it from time to time, but it isn't necessarily always the answer by any means. 
Thanks, Rob. Another one that you might be often asked about is supplements. And mm. from time to time, people wonder, should, should our children as individuals be taking supplements? What's your advice there? Um, it, this is a question I probably get nearly as often as I, I, I get any question. Um, so the evidence is a bit sketchy, is, is, is what I always say. Um, it started with a chap called Elliot Burston in the States, who has been promulgating vitamin A, um, 15,000 international units, that's for adults. So half strength, probably seven and a half thousand for children on a daily basis. Um, for retinal dystrophies in general, albeit with a one big caveat, you never take it if you have Stargardt disease because it'll make your disease get worse. Now that's not relevant to anyone with Usher syndrome, but it's just in the inherited retinal disease um, forum. And there are others as well. Um, so a chap called Peter Campuchiaro uh, talked about uh, N-acetylcysteine. Um, there was another paper recently from 2018 talking about taurine they're all retrospective. The, the quality of the data is really not very impressive. There are no randomized controlled clinical trials to actually test it. And so it's very difficult to give cast iron evidence that this is doing anything. So what do I say? I say, if you come to me and you've decided you take them, great, carry on. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not, we don't have enough evidence to be able to prescribe it on the NHS and therefore we won't prescribe it. Um, I generally say anything that's good for your heart is good for your eyes. So oily fish, green and yellow vegetables, okay? And don't smoke. Did I say that again? Do not smoke. <laughs> um, that's, that's usually my advice. Thank you, Rob. Very clear. Um, one final question and um, hopefully ending on a positive note. You will see lots of patients in your clinics, and I'm wondering when you see those patients that will are thriving in their lives with Usher syndrome, is there a common factor that you can ident identify across them? Mm, there is, you know, um, it's parents. It's the attitude that parents have, and and I, I some of you who are on the call have probably heard me say this because it blew me away when I heard it, and I tell it to nearly every parent that I see um, so one parent said to me um, several years later with a really well-adjusted fabulous daughter who was amazing and she and I and I said you know I asked them this question what did you do how how have you ended up in such a positive place and they said um, you know clearly they they had the same reaction that that we all would in this scenario of feeling devastated but they recognized their role as parents as being one of guiding their child on a journey and this wasn't the journey that they had imagined that they would take their child on but it was an adventure where they would all be learning together and their role was just to anticipate and help and experience that adventure together with their child. And that was, it was so positive. And, and honestly, if you can move through the cycles of grief and 
and move on to a state where you accept that this is what, what it is and that you're there to help your child on their adventure and on their journey and experience it with them and and be positive rather than looking at the loss that 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 does more than anything that i have ever seen so parental attitude and approach i think is in, is the most important thing thank you rob that seems like a great place to end it um, and i do hope that anyone who hasn't yet reached out to any of our organizations at usher kids uk retina uk cure russia um, and the various support organizations that are out there i do hope that you'll reach out to us because there's a community of support here to help you in that process of finding your feet um, and you know, looking forward. So um, we look forward to, to being part of your network as you move beyond diagnosis. So thanks so much to Rob. I'm gonna hand over to Matt to, to close, but um, thanks to you both, James and Rob, for giving us your time and your expertise. Pleasure. Huge, huge thank you to our speakers this evening for um, such an amazing session and thank you to all of you who have joined this webinar today. Uh, I'd also like to thank um, both Susan and Sarah for providing the, um, the BSL interpretation this evening. Um, I know we've had a few technical issues which we apologise for. Um, technology is a wonderful thing when it all works. Um, so as mentioned at the beginning and through um, the presentation this evening, um, this is part of a two-part mini-series. The second instalment is planned for Tuesday the 12th of July, um, where we will be looking at the latest research around Usher syndrome and what the prospects are for treatments. Um, this session will be hosted by Professor uh, Maria Musaji from... Um, Grail Street and Moorfields. Um, we will be sending out an email over the next couple of days, which has got details of how you can re-watch or listen to tonight's presentation and details on how you can book onto other events. Uh, we'll also be sending out um, a very, very short feedback um, request on today's session. We really, really do value um, all feedback um, and it helps us to develop our webinars and other services. So thank you once again for everyone who's joined. Thank you again for our speakers and thank you. Good night.